Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. More criticism at Hamilton's proposed homeless registry. What is the worst road in Hamilton? Well, according to some experts, allergies are getting worse because of climate change. Another call to end Ontario's political cash grab. Rising costs continue to impact many Canadians. And the streaming world could soon get another big player. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. You know, we're looking at everything that we can do as a municipality that can provide options uh, for people that uh, are sleeping rough or, uh, you know, don't have anywhere else to go. That is Ward 8 Councillor John Paul Danko, who joined me on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML yesterday morning as we discussed uh, homeless encampments in Hamilton and the city's proposal, at least a request for city staff, to look into creating uh, a registry, for lack of a better term, of residents who would be willing, who would volunteer to host someone living in an encampment. So picture a homeowner in the city volunteering to be on this registry and being paired up with someone who's living in a tent, perhaps behind Hamilton City Hall. I don't think it's a good idea. I don't think many people are going to volunteer their homes or their spaces to do this. As I said yesterday, we're in a what's-in-it-for-me kind of world right now. We're in a nimbyism kind of world, not in my backyard. Heck, if not in my backyard, not in my house, that is for sure. I can envision many people thinking that or even saying that. And as you can imagine, advocates for Hamilton's homeless, and rightfully so, condemning this proposal, saying this is just not a good idea. There's got to be something better. And there is something better. There's two options as far as I am concerned. It's number one, building some affordable housing for these individuals, or opening up perhaps a community rec center. Let's designate a rec center in town and put people in tents in this much more secure facility. You have a secure entrance and exit. There are washrooms in this facility. I think it's a much stable place. Yes, you have to staff it. There's going to be a cost to that. But we're also paying bylaw to go to these encampments and doing what they are doing. Stuart Klazinga is a spokesperson with Acorn Hamilton and joins us now on GMH on 900 CHML. Stuart, good morning. How are you? I'm doing fine, thank you. Good morning. What are your thoughts on my suggestions? Opening up a community center, let's get people in encampments in a in a rec center kind of setting. You're, is that a dumb idea or is that a good idea? Well, it, the idea is basically create another shelter, which is a good interim solution. You know, it would at least get them off the street. Um, certainly, I hope that we have uh, some sort of additional plan uh, ready to go in time for winter coming up um i realize we're not even in summer yet but winter is coming um so and in terms of this registry i mean i'm i'm, I'm sure i'm not going to speak for you i'll let you answer the question but i don't think this is a good idea i think this is a band-aid proposal i think this is a uh, a big reach by the city to say hey how about this yeah certainly as i mentioned yesterday uh, I, I don't believe that this is going to pass legal um I, I I can't see it getting over that hurdle, but uh, you're right. This is this is charity cre- created through policy, and we need an actual um, idea that's going to help long term. Uh, this is something that 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 can already be done by anyone who wants to do it. Um, so, 
Yeah, uh, as Sarah Jama said on on Friday, uh, we've we've never needed the government's help to engage in mutual aid. That's something that we've all been doing for a very long time already. Um, so th- this isn't people who would sign up; they wouldn't need to because they can a- already do it. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Stuart Klazinga, spokesperson with Acorn Hamilton, a tenant advocacy group here in Hamilton. We're talking about Hamilton's homeless crisis. Uh, Another option that I thought of the other day, too, are churches. Are churches an option? If the church wants to be, certainly, and charity historically has some sort of role in um, most uh, religions and or if not all religions and uh, um, also there's golf courses lots of space on those mm-hmm. that's going to take up revenue though Stuart as as would a rec center right like you shut down a rec center for a homeless encampment you know no one's going to be accessing this rec center because it's now a de facto shelter and that's I think what the city's kind of grappling with well if our idea is to move them, then move them where and to what end? Like, yeah. how how often are we going to move them around until we actually have a place for them to call home and, you know, stay there until such a time that they're ready to or able to even go out and find their own place? Maybe housing prices will come down. Maybe we will build more affordable housing. Um, as long as the plan is to move them, we can't move them like somewhere that they won't uh, ever be seen because if we did that, they'd have a home. Yeah. Yeah. And the answer is, and I, I hope this is not what city councilors are thinking. Hey, let's just get them away from city hall or let's just, you know, ev- evaporate all uh, visuals of tents in the city just to get them to, uh, you know, another kind of Band-Aid solution. You know, my suggestion for churches or rec center is that this is a this is a stepping stone to something more secure and something more permanent, which we all know is going to take time and we all know is going to take money. But at least they're they're not in the out out, out in the open. They're not come wintertime, as you suggested, you know, facing ferocious elements. We need much more stable housing for these individuals. Getting there is going to take some time and a lot of money. Well, I mean, housing an individual costs less than having them in a shelter or having them living homeless on the street. So, if your approach is from uh, Budishary standpoint, then again, your best option is to see them housed. Yeah, absolutely. One last question for you. Uh, Residents of Stony Creek, as you know, in shock over this past weekend's double homicide in which two tenants were uh, allegedly killed by their landlord. In your your capacity with ACORN, can you just offer some thoughts on this situation from a landlord-tenant standpoint? Not really much else I can say other than what I said yesterday, which was simply that uh, we were certainly shocked to read the news and uh, were deeply troubled by it. And uh, tenants facing threats or harassment from landlords isn't uh, quite anything new, but this was definitely an extreme example. And uh, we're also very disappointed by some comments online being left by housing commodity speculators and landlord lobby. Well, that is uh, disappointing to hear, that's for sure. Stuart, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you for your time today. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Stuart Klazinga is a spokesperson for Acorn Hamilton. We'll continue to put the pedal to the metal on this homeless encampment issue because we need to find a solution and ultimately a permanent solution. We all know what it is. Just a matter of getting there. 
You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, the CAA has released its annual list of worst roads in Ontario for 2023. And not one, but two roads in Hamilton have made the list, including a road that has given us fits for years. Teresa DeFelice is an assistant vice president, government and community relations with the CAA of South Central Ontario and joins us now on GMH. Teresa, good morning. How are you? Good, Rick. Thanks. Good morning. Uh, before we get to the uh, the top 10 or, or the bottom 10, however you want to look at it, uh, this is the 19th time that you guys have done uh, this sort of list since 2003. What sort of feedback and, and what kind of volume of feedback have you gotten from motorists this year? Well, you know, we hear from thousands and thousands of Ontarians who come to the website to uh, finally have their voice to, you know, with the help of CA. Uh, to the politicians who they hope will hear it. And, you know, and that's really the amazing thing about about the campaign is it gives people an opportunity to take their complaints to a higher ground versus talking to family and friends and coworkers. Um, you know, they rarely talk to their politicians about it. And, and that's what really is amazing um, that we get this kind of, of um, outpouring of, of people's thoughts on what pain points that are being caused by the roadways. And that's the real thrust behind this list, is not only to say, yeah, these roads are awful, but hey, let's do something about it. Right. And, you know, it, it, they get that it's going to get some attention, right, from, from folks like you and, and media outlets. Um, but the other thing is that CA's advocacy team kicks in after this, and uh, we'll be communicating with uh, all those politicians who've had the distinction of uh, having their city named with roads uh, on the top 10, as well as regional lists that we comprise, uh, that we put together from across the province. So let's look at the top 10 list, and we'll go from 10 down to 6, and I'll just get your thoughts. And and there's some major streets here, like number 10 here, Ontario Street in Mississauga, 9 Lakeshore Boulevard East in Toronto, 8, here's another Hamilton Street, Aberdeen Avenue. I've been complaining about this street for at least a few years now. Number 7, Steeles Avenue East in Toronto, and Lackley Street in Aurelia comes in at number 6. Your overall thoughts on 10 through 6? I would say that, you know, we, we've had some repeats on here, and, and that does happen from time to time, especially that, you know, so a lot of the roads that are that end up on the top 10 anyway are really major thoroughfares. Um, and they span, you know, a long, long stretch of roadway. Um, and so uh, we have some new ones, as you said. We have six repeats on the list this year, although the numbers jump around as to where on the list they are. And and we have four new ones. And interesting enough, you know, three of, of the roads that are on the list have huge transit infrastructure projects attached to them as well. Um, so, you know, Eglinton Avenue West in Toronto, um, you know, Finch uh, Avenue West, here Ontario Street, Mississauga. These are the, the home or the sites of uh, some r- pretty big transit projects that uh, are coming our way. Teresa DeFelice is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Teresa is with the CAA of South Central Ontario, and it's out with its latest annual list of worst roads in Ontario for 2023. At number five, Finch Avenue West in Toronto, Carling Avenue in Ottawa is in at number four. At number three, County Road 49 in Prince Edward County. Number two, Eglinton Avenue West in Toronto, and I'll let you announce number one. And the number one worst road in Ontario is Barton Street East in Hamilton. Again. Again, for the second consecutive year, yeah. We've been watching 
uh, Barton Street, you know, sort of climbed throughout the list over the last few years. Um, it hit the top of the list last year and is there again, despite the fact, you know, the municipality did start uh, some work and at least dedicated, got the contract signed shortly after we announced last year, actually, um, to start fixing Barton Street East. So there's a potential that by this time next year, Barton Street East will not be number one. There is a potential. If they, if they get enough of the work done and people are feeling like it's time to set their sights on some other roads in Hamilton, like I said, we saw uh, Aberdeen Avenue pop up for the first time this year. Um, you know, those big construction projects also cause some traffic congestion. And so, you know, it's important to know that this campaign doesn't just speak to drivers. It's, uh, we get transit users, cyclists, pedestrians who, who chime in and, um, and, you know, I would say what we saw this year, I guess, with traffic back at, you know, almost pre-pandemic levels is that the number three reason why people vote for the roads that they do is due to traffic congestion. So, um, you know, we may see some other ones pop up who are feeling the effects of the work being done on Barton Street East, or we could still see Barton Street East as it really gets heavy into the, the mix of trying to get through it as well as construction and, and getting some of that work started. Well, I'm I'm not okay with a three-peat, but I can see it happening. We we uh, The CAA did have a three-peat back in 2012 through 14 when Dufferin Street in Toronto was back-to-back-to-back the number one worst road in the province. So hopefully we can avoid it here in Hamilton. Hopefully, yes. And But, you know, we, we love that Hamilton is speaking up uh, about their, their roadways. They are taking the opportunity to ensure that their politicians, elected officials, or decision makers at the city are aware of the pain points they're experiencing and and letting uh, their voices be heard. You know, some of the other on the regional list, so, you know, you see the top 10. We also have regional lists that we talk to the municipalities about. And this gives this gives some people the opportunity to say, okay, maybe they didn't, they weren't part of the crowd that was going to be loud enough to get uh, a street on the top 10. But, you know, Main Street West, Burling Street East, and, and Rymel Road East in Hamilton are also uh, causing a little bit of uh, pain uh, to Hamiltonians. And so we may see some of those pop up next year. That could be. Uh, Teresa, thank you for your time. And thanks again for putting this list together and shining a spotlight on these deficiencies. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And it's Teresa DeFelice from the CAA of South Central Ontario. You can still have your say. It's the focus of our poll question of the day on Twitter at AM900CHML. Barton Street East, number one on the list for worst roads in Ontario. Do you agree? Yes, fix it now or no, there are worse roads. And if there is, I'd love to see it. Not drive on it. But I'd love to see it. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. If you feel like your allergies are acting up, well, you're probably not alone. In fact, allergies in children and adults have been rising over the last several years, and some experts in the field are pointing to climate change as the reason why. Dr. Susan Wasserman is a professor of medicine and the director of the Division of Clinical Immunology and Allergy at McMaster University and joins us now on GMH. Dr. Wasserman, good morning. How are you today? I'm okay, thanks. How are you? I'm good. What are you seeing when it comes to people with allergies? They're they're getting worse? I would say so. I think that they're getting more severe in symptomatology, and I'm also seeing people come in who are younger and younger, so... It's across all age groups and seeing more of it. So what is the connection to climate change? 
Well, climate change is probably just one of the explanations. I mean, with climate change, we're getting a longer season for plants to pollinate. They're starting earlier, the growing season is longer, and because these plants are under stress from warm weather, many are secreting more pollen. So all of those are contributing to more symptoms and more severity. So I would gather that the allergy season is also elongated as well. It is. I mean, people who have looked at this are now estimating that the allergy season may be about three weeks longer. And this is going back over years of doing pollen counts and just seeing some of the trends. So overall, yes. Is there any information that points to more people developing allergies? I would say so. I mean, over the decades, what we've seen is that there's a rise of all allergy. And it's not only allergic rhinitis, which is the subject for today, but there's more food allergy and more asthma. So this has been the trend for a long time. And it's quite complicated. I mean, some of it has to do with the way we live. We're living more cleanly. Our immune systems have gotten more lazy. So instead of fighting infection, we've become allergic is one of the consequences And then there's other factors that may be important as well. Pollution, vitamin D level, when we feed our children. So all of these things, I think, may play a role and uh, lots of things to look at in trying to find an explanation. We know that COVID-19 had a massive impact on virtually everything. Did it also impact the allergy world, if I can call it that? Well, you know what, look, it's an interesting concept and a lot of this is going to play out in years to come. What did a lot of isolation from infection do? I mean, we had about two or three years of it, and we'll know more. All we do know is that for things like asthma, et cetera, because people were so separate and wearing masks, we actually saw less in the way of acute symptoms from, you know, asthma exacerbations on account of that. But the effect that it'll have on the development of allergy going forward remains to be seen. It's going to be interesting data to collect. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Dr. Susan Wasserman from McMaster University. We're talking about uh, rising rates of allergies, and and many are pointing to climate change as one of the reasons why. Uh, There might be some listeners out there that think, "Ah, you know, allergies, just take some medication, you'll be fine, you you have to blow your nose or whatever the case is. What is the real impact of having an allergy? Well, I think that, you know, the impact of allergy is often underestimated. A lot of people think, oh, it's just a runny nose and take something and blow your nose and you'll feel better. But in fact, there's lots of impact. People don't concentrate as well. People don't feel well. They don't sleep well. It's a huge sleep impairment. Often during allergy season, students are writing exams. They're taking medications in many ways. The medications themselves, like the sedating antihistamines, which we've been discouraging, affect students and and adults as well. So the impact, I think, is a lot more than anybody, you know, has recognized over the years. And it should be taken seriously. There's good treatment out there. Speak to your doctor. Get it. See your allergist. We now do have, you know, good allergy tablets to desensitize people in addition to very good medication. So get the help that you need. And some great physicians such as yourself uh, leading the charge as well. Dr. Wasserman, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. That is Dr. Susan Wasserman, Professor of Medicine, Director in the Division of Clinical Immunology and Allergy at McMaster University. I, I used to suffer from pretty bad allergies when I was a kid. 
uh, early teens, I remember uh, also having a uh, an inhaler at one point because it was just hard to breathe, especially during the summer months. Now, whether I grew out of it or, or whatever the case is, I don't suffer nearly as bad as those kind of symptoms. But, uh, I, you know, I, f- I feel for you. For those who are in that boat and have allergies and the warmer the weather gets, the worse the pollination gets and the worse you get, uh, I feel for you for sure. I also feel for a lot of drivers on Barton Street East this morning because once again, it is number one on the list of the CAA's worst roads in Ontario for 2023. It's the focus of our poll question of the day as well on Twitter at AM900CHML. Do you agree that Barton East is the worst? Yes, fix it now or no, there are worse roads out there. Right now, 78% say, yeah, Barton is truly number one. Have your say on our text line at 905-645-3221 or via email, rick at 900chml.com. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900chml. Looking at the provincial government saying, hey, uh, stop dipping into our back pockets. If you're unfamiliar, well, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation is uh, shining a spotlight on what has been happening, uh, at least for the last little while, in what is being called a provincial political welfare regime or scheme. And uh, here to talk about it and describe what is actually happening is Jay Goldberg. He's the Ontario and Interim Atlantic Director with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation and with us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Jay, welcome to the show. How are you? Doing well. Great to be with you. So explain how this political cash grab is working here in Ontario. Well, essentially in 2014, former Premier Kathleen Wynne decided that we should uh, have a system where the government and through that taxpayers gave money to political parties four times a year to spend on whatever they wanted. Uh, You know, she decided to give out this cash so that parties wouldn't be as reliant on individual donations, uh, which of course doesn't make sense. Uh, We believe that, and I think most Ontarians do, that uh, political parties should function based on getting donations from their supporters. Uh, But instead, uh, Kathleen Wynne decided that money should come from taxpayers. And so uh, anywhere from 14 to $16 million a year goes from taxpayers' wallets into the pockets of political parties to spend on whatever they want. Now, Doug Ford promised to get rid of this in 2018, he hasn't. He's actually he's extended it. He's increased the amount. Uh, he offered a payday advance ahead of the last election to political parties. Uh, and so payments have been on pause since the last election. They're set to go back into place this month. And so the CTF is calling on Ford to scrap the program before even one more dollar goes into the pockets of political parties. How much money are we talking about here? We're talking uh, about anywhere from 14 to $16 million a year, uh, which may not sound like a lot, but of course that's money that comes out of our pockets and is heading right into politicians' wallets. So this should be money uh, that's spent on uh, either improved services or lower taxes. And frankly, it's more the principle than it is just the $14 million. I mean, you know, it's a lot of money, yes, but as well, the idea that we should be giving taxpayer money to political parties Forcing voters to give their hard-earned cash to parties they don't support simply doesn't sit well with taxpayers. And it's something that in 2018 Ford said he would get rid of because he himself said Ontarians shouldn't have to give money to political parties that they don't support. Of interest as well, and we're in discussion with Jay Goldberg, Ontario and Interim Atlantic Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, uh, as we talk about this per-vote subsidy that uh, provincial political parties get. Of interest is when you look at the voter turnout in elections, 30, 35, 40 percent, 
not everyone is getting their dollars worth. Not, not everyone is getting their dollars worth. I suppose if turnout was higher, uh, parties would be getting even more money. Um, but I mean, it, it's just such a ridiculous system. And I'll, I'll give you a sense why. Uh, so Premier Ford originally said he was going to get rid of the system. A few years ago, he said he was going to get rid of it. But then when COVID hit, he said, no, we have to extend these payments because uh, COVID hit and political parties, you know, might not be able to bring in as much cash. Well, in 2021, in the middle of the pandemic, Ontario's parties raised $27 million. That was a record. That was $10 million more than what was raised in 2019, which was the year before the pandemic. So Ford's excuse of the pandemic to keep giving money to political parties rings hollow. And on top of all of that, he's, he's saying the government won't stop these payments until 2025, and he's still blaming COVID. I mean, look, the pandemic is certainly in the rearview mirror, and there's no reason why in 2023 we shouldn't be able to cut off these payments and say, look, the pandemic is over. Another thing to point to is that the federal government dropped this kind of scheme years ago, and they're still able to raise millions of dollars. Yeah, so a lot of political parties, the opposition parties in particular at the federal level, were raising concerns. They said, oh, if, if the Harper government scraps this program, only the Conservatives will be able to raise money and the rest of us are going to go broke. Uh, well, what happened is that parties adapted and they're raising more money than ever from supporters. Uh, the Liberals, the NDP, the Bloc, the, the Green Party, they're all raising uh, millions of dollars a year from supporters as of the Conservatives. And it's a much healthier place to be because, you know, political parties understand in such an environment that you have to, uh, you know, go out and work for, for your contributions. You have to make sure that you're advocating on behalf of, of your supporters and Canadians. Uh, and to, to reward that, they'll give you money through donations. So I think it also puts political parties in better touch with the people because they need to understand what people want to continue to fundraise. Uh, and as I said, you know, fundraising is through the roof at the federal level. Fundraising is doing very well in Ontario. There's no reason to keep having these payments. And, you know, I think a lot of Ontarians who are struggling to fill their fridges or fill up their gas tank at the pumps don't like the idea of their tax dollars going into the pockets of, you know, Doug Ford or Merritt Stiles or, or any other of uh, the party leaders. Yeah, I think we're all in that same boat. Uh, who knows when it's going to change? That's the other thing. Let's make sure that uh, we continue to put the heat on it. And I know, Jay, you and the CTF will continue to do so. Thanks for the time this morning. Thank you. And it's Jay Goldberg from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Winning the lottery is a good financial plan. Actually, it's not because the odds of doing so is tremendously remote. But there are some other things that you could be doing to keep your costs low and, and manage your budget. And I mention that because there's a new survey out from BDO Debt Solutions that shows half of Canadians are reducing their living expenses to keep up with rising costs. 27%, so about a quarter of us, are using savings just to get by. Paul Anacek is a vice president and licensed insolvency trustee at BDO Debt Solutions and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Paul, good morning. Welcome back to the show. How are you? 
I'm doing great, Rick. It's another beautiful sunny day, and uh, you know your listeners. I, I just heard about the lottery giveaway, and that sounds uh, great. But uh, we're here to talk about uh, affordability, and uh, unfortunately, some people think even with the lottery, affordability is the survey is showing is getting out of hand for a lot of Canadians. <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. As as you know, inflation pressures continue to squeeze household budgets here, there, and everywhere. Uh, Canadians are coping with those affordability challenges by cutting back on expenses. They're budgeting better, at least trying to do so. They're considering a side gig or a side hustle to make ends meet. We're seeing a lot of people taking on those kind of side gigs. And that's all according to this new survey by BDO Debt Solutions. So let's talk about the findings of the latest affordability index and focus on how Ontarians are doing. Uh, Rick, really, the BDO Affordability Index was conducted by Ledger, examines affordability and debt here in Canada. Now, we've been doing these surveys for uh, a number of years now. Uh, the previous one was uh, in the fall. We've moved it now to the spring now. Um, you had mentioned that half of Canadians are uh, reducing their living expenses and a quarter are using their savings to get by. Here in Ontario, it's very similar numbers with 49% reducing living expenses and 31% relying on savings. So you can see here in Ontario, more people are starting to use their savings. Now, when it comes to managing their debt, you know, 59% are cutting back on non-essentials like vacations, eating out, uh, in order to make their monthly payments. Now, which is understandable because, you know, we talked about that on previous shows about cutting your budget. Where the major concern is coming in is here in Ontario, 46% you know, are really starting to sacrifice essentials such as food, clothing, utility bills to make their debt payments. That is becoming the major concern right there. When you have to cut back on the things you need, such as food and your utility payments, to make your debt payments, it is becoming a major concern. And including that, many here in Ontario uh, are considering taking a side job, you know, 29% are considering a side job to uh, really pay for essentials and 26% to pay down debt. So, you know, people here in Ontario are struggling and the poll is really showing that, you know, they're coming going to all lengths. All lengths really than some that they most really should be taking advantage of. And really that is seeing a debt professional, which here in Ontario, you know, only 16% say they would reach out to a debt professional for help. So, you know, they're already making the choices, cutting back food, cutting back utilities, but they won't take that step to see a licensed insolvency trustee to take care of that, that problems. Now, that is a real concern. Where does that reluctance lie? I mean, why are so many people so reluctant to reach out to a debt professional such as yourself for some help? And, and for those who are struggling and, and putting it off, what is your advice to them? Well, first of all, people uh, really see debt as a taboo subject. Now, we talked about that before as well, that, you know what, we, we've learned our uh, habits from our parents. And one of the things I remember always growing up is there's always that discussion is you don't talk about finances in front of the kids. Well, if you don't talk about finances in front of the kids, how are they going to learn uh, when there's difficult times? Secondly, there is a lot of people that feel they'll be embarrassed or they'll feel judged or they actually feel that they're the only ones going through that type of situation. You know, these are really wrong perceptions to have regarding your debt, because if you don't realize that, you know what, there is help out there. I'm not the only one. 
then you're going to be very reluctant to take that next step. And you're going to be starting to do what we refer to as the do-it-yourself model, which is basically Google research, which could lead to wrong choices as well. The proper thing to really do here in Ontario is to see that licensed insolvency trustee. Number one, we are not here to judge. Number two, we are here to listen. And number three, we are regulated by the uh, federal government to provide all options available. That includes budgeting, credit counseling, debt counseling, consumer proposals, and bankruptcy. Now, bankruptcy, you know, there's still a lot of uh, uncertainty around it. People think of it as a B uh, word, the big bad bankruptcy. It's not the case. And one thing you do when you meet with the licensed insolvency trustee, in private, we go over these options, including bankruptcy, and explain that it's not something to be feared as well. Interesting findings from the latest BDO Affordability Index. Paul, we'll have to leave it there as we're out of time. Appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Rick. Paul Anatyuk is a Vice President and Licensed Insolvency Trustee with BDO Debt Solutions. Uh, you can contact his local office at 905-524-1008. Online, the website is bdodebt.ca. What are the interesting uh, tidbits of info, and there's a lot of good tidbits of info in this uh, survey, is that when it comes to their level of debt, uh, this survey, this index, shows that about 30% of Canadians feel so overwhelmed by their debt, 30%, that's a big number, that they don't know what to do. And that number in Ontario is about 32%. Uh, I, I would say contact a licensed uh, professional who can help you navigate these debt waters, whether it's bankruptcy, debt consolidation, consumer proposal, whatever option is best for you. I'm sure they'll find it uh, for you. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Streaming services. There are the usual suspects, Netflix, Disney+, Plus. Amazon Prime Video, Apple TV, the list goes on and on and on. The Wall Street Journal is reporting that Walt Disney Company is actively preparing to make sports broadcasting giant ESPN a standalone streaming service. So the question I have is, is this going to be the start of major sports and news channels leaving cable entirely for streaming? Jay Rosenthal is the co-host of The Peak Daily. You can read thepeak.com. That's the website. He joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Jay, good morning. How are you? Good morning to you. Is the plan to make ESPN a streaming-only option? Yes. No. I mean, they want to make it streaming available so you don't have to go through your cable provider. But it appears that they will also allow you to do it through your regular cable provider. But that business is going down. I was just looking at some numbers. There are uh, 77 million people that are not cable subscribers that were in 2012. So that number is really going down and going down quickly. It was down almost 5 million people uh, in 2021 alone, uh, which was up from about 4 million people the year before. So like people are not subscribing to cable in the numbers they used to, and the number is going in the wrong direction. So for channels like ESPN and their parent companies like Disney, they need to find other ways to get that content to the people, and streaming appears to be it. But in this case, it doesn't look like ESPN will only be streaming. They will also, you know, be available to the dwindling number of people who still have cable. But they, they're they're trying to find their next audience, and they have a bit of it on ESPN Plus, which is a sort of pared down version of ESPN now available in the states. Um, but it is likely to happen, and, and clearly this is the trend. And the streaming channels and the cable companies alike are trying to figure out how to get people to watch their stuff. 
for the dwindling number of those who are still with cable, is is there any reason why they're still hanging on to it? They like changing the channels. <laughs> I've actually been, th- I, and I, I, I'm partially joking, but if you are a person that likes to flick through random channels, then cable really is for you. Yeah. There's not a great equivalent of that while you stream, right? So if you're streaming your favorite show, I just heard you talking about The Mandalorian, mm-hmm. you know, you can't really find a, a lull in The Mandalorian to then go shift to uh, part of an episode of The Office on, on you know, Crave or Netflix, right? So like, it, if, if you like to flip through and just randomly catch shows, then really that, you know, cable is your option. But if you're more intentional, this is the way. See, I just rolled in a Mandalorian reference. You did. The way is actually to stream. And you were talking about sort of the streaming services you have. I think we have more. You're making me feel like I might be spending too much on streaming. But there, <laughs> there, you know, the streaming of sports is already available here in Canada. You know, I I subscribe both to TSN and Sportsnet because they carry different shows. Uh, also, uh, I have a weakness for European football, so I also have. Fubo TV. So streaming sports is actually, I think, uh, something that ESPN is about to get in on a big way in the States because it is a better value, I think, to consumers because you can watch just a lot more. From the consumer standpoint, is streaming at the end of the day, however many streaming channels you subscribe to, is it cheaper than having cable? Uh, I thought it was. And, until you, until <laughs> I you thought it was when I them. cut the cable, uh, when I cut the cord, but <laughs> it doesn't appear to be. But I think it'll all come out in the wash, to be quite honest. But I also think the quality has gone up, to be quite honest. Right? You're, I don't find myself watching, this is you know, uh, a sample size of one or four in our family. Like We don't find ourselves watching just random TV with the TV on in the background. It's much more intentional. Yeah. And I think that is probably better for us as a whole, not to be sitting watching random things on TV. But but you know, if, if there's a sporting event you want to watch, you know you will have it. You don't have to go hunting around for it, right? Um, similarly, you know, there's better TV, better. You know, this is sort of the height of TV in terms of quality. I mean, you know, uh, Succession just ended, and that was a world class TV show. Mrs. Maisel, you know, all of those things. The Mandalorian, you know, it, it's funny to watch it, but it looks like a movie, but it really is a TV show on Disney Plus. So like, the quality has gone way up and gone more niche. And I think that is probably the way of the future and streaming is the way to get at that. We got 20 seconds, Jay. What's the best thing you're watching on TV right now? I just finished Succession this week. That was quite, I don't want to give any, if you haven't watched it yet, I'm not going to give it away. But again, you know, uh, I, I also just love all the all the Star Wars stuff on Disney+. Plus. It's just it's just too compelling to not subscribe to Disney+. Plus. I'm not trying to do an ad for Disney+. Plus. They don't need my, you know, they don't need my ads, but <laughs> yeah. it really is. It's world class. I will put FUBAR into the mix. It is funny to a point and, and not the best of shows, but I, I just get a kick out of Arnold Schwarzenegger doing his, his old bits. Jay, we'll have to leave it there. Thanks for the time today. And uh, you can read thepeak.com for more uh, great uh, tidbits of info from the business world. Thanks again, Jay. You got it. Jay Rosenthal is the host of The Peak Daily. You can also listen to The Peak Daily live at 7.27 a.m. and 4.27 p.m. weekdays here on 900 CHML. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.